Okay, so hello everybody. Nice to see you. Hi, Anne. Hi, Hi both you Anne's. <laughs> yeah. uh, the Parsha is Shmini. Hi, Bruria. You can find it in the Chumash. I was going to say in the Haggadah. In the Chumash on page 707. Um, 707. Let's say a blessing for studying Torah. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Kishanu B'Mitzvotav V'Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah. We're going to read Shmini, Parshat Shmini, which means the eighth day, begins with a description in chapter 9 of the ceremony <coughs> that, and the ritual that takes place to um, initiate, inaugurate the altar place in the Mishkan, in the traveling sanctuary. And then... Chapter 10 relates the story of Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, who, after this incredible ceremony, where fire comes down from heaven and consumes the offering on the altar, comes forth from the presence of God, they go in and say, we want to try it again, and then instead, the fire comes down and consumes them. And so this is one of the, let's see, I don't think puzzling is the right word. Puzzling is a good word, but it's more than that. Mysterious, yeah, mysterious stories of the Torah that does not have a, by any means, a single explanation. Nor is there any, is it evident what the answer is? And so Jews have wrestled with this passage for thousands of years, and I haven't gotten tired of it yet. So <laughs> each year, something new, some new perspective, you turn the facet, and there's a new way of looking at it or a new way to refract the story. I brought some. Uh, I know which direction I think I'll be heading in today, and I brought some texts for us to look at if we get there. Um, but in the meantime... Let's read it and uh, see what um, Torah has to unfold <laughs> to us today, okay? So let's read chapter 9 so we can set up what happens in chapter 10. <coughs> Excuse me. Now remember that a big chunk of the center of the Torah is occupied with building the Mishkan, building its um, uh, accoutrements, dressing the high priest, setting up the altar, describing exactly how you're to bring offerings. There's a lot going on. The children of Israel aren't going to... They're still at Mount Sinai. They're not going to actually leave until we get into the second portion of... the third portion of um, the Book of Numbers. And we're in Leviticus now, or in the early part of Leviticus. So, um, 
here's a part of that they are because remember they're creating a dwelling place for the divine presence in their midst. Nothing they could do could be more important than that. And the Torah has, is very occupied with that question. How do we create a, dwe- a dwelling place for the divine presence in the midst of our community? Uh, so let's read. On the eighth, on page 707, chapter 9 of Leviticus. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons the el- and the elders of Israel. He said to Aaron, Take a calf of the herd for a purgation offering. That means a sin offering. So, chatat. Purgation means so that you might be purged of the sin. Right? Um, And a ram for a burnt offering without blemish. The burnt offering was the regular offering to God uh, that was consumed completely by fire and therefore is known in the King James translation as the Holocaust offering, which is where the word Holocaust comes from, completely consumed. Um, It's not where the Hebrew word for the Holocaust comes from. That word is Shoah, which means destruction. Um, um, But anyway, I thought that you'd be interested to know that. Uh, Without blemish, and bring them before the Eternal. And remember from our class a while ago, the last time I were doing this, the word for offering is in Hebrew korban, which means to bring near. So the purpose of all these offerings is to get close to God. That's the idea, to get proximity, nearness, connection. Um, And speak to the Israelites saying, did I just read that? No. Saying, take a he-goat for a purgation offering. So Aaron, the priest, has to take his own offering to cleanse. And then the Israelites take, also bring a symbolic offering for all of them. Take a he-goat for a purgation offering, a calf and a lamb, yearlings without blemish for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for an offering of well-being to sacrifice before the eternal. And again, I'll point out... Um, Yes, Lisboach, and a meal offering with oil mixed in for today, Yudhevavhe will appear to you. So this is the moment. They have constructed the altar. They have invested Aaron as the high priest. They have explained all the rituals and they're ready to go. So this is like, this is happening. So they brought to the front of the tent of meeting which is another name for the Mishkan, it would appear, the place where you meet God, um, that the things that Moses had commanded. And the community leadership came forward and stood before yod And Moses said, This is what yod has commanded you to do, that the presence of yod may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Come forward to the altar. Look at the Hebrew. In verse 7, Vayomer Moshe el Aharon, Krav el Now again, this is where our translation is just so unfortunate. What does Krav mean? Draw near. Same as Korban. It's all about coming near. And come forward would be a, 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 a um, gush. 
Vayigash, that would be come forward or um, approach. But this isn't. This is come near. And I'm going to keep pointing that out because, as I said a couple of weeks ago, this is the theme of all of this ritual. Um, and make your sin offering and your burnt offering. Make expiation. The Hebrew word for expiation is chaper, which is like Yom Kippur. In other words, make atonement uh, for yourself and for the people. And then sacrifice the people's offering and make atonement for them as God has commanded. So Aaron came forward to the altar, Yikrav again, he uh, came near, and slaughtered the calf of the sin offering. Aaron's sons brought the blood to him. Look at the Hebrew, verse 9. So, Aaron's sons brought near the blood to him. So, the Hebrew, the Torah is, could choose so many different words. They could use the word approach. As, uh, they could use the word come forward. They could use the word brought. But that's not what the Hebrew does. I just have to point that out over and over again because the English fails us here. It's such a different feeling in my body. Of coming near. Mm-hmm. Bring it near. Come close. Come near. Come close. It's like that you're using your upper body as opposed to coming forward. You're using oh, that's interesting. To more. come near, you lean in, right? Yes, it's a different, more intimate word, isn't it? When coming forward, you step. That's right. And you bring or you yakriv, you... You, uh, you bring it near, it's all very different. That's right, there's a, there's a forward movement in a beautiful way there. That's right. Um, and that is the theme. It'll come up over and over and over again. The Hebrew word for being connected to God is devekut. Devekut means to, it's translated traditionally as cleave. And cleave is one of those interesting English words because to cleave means to connect but cleave also means to separate. So I've always wondered about that in English. But, hi, Gail. Hello. Um, but uh, devek in modern Hebrew is glue. So devekut is attaching yourself. So you want to come close and attach yourself in that way. And what is the alone? Where? the end of eight, uh, the slaughter, that was his. The, the sin offering, that was his. Because he has to bring one, and he has to do one for the children of Israel, too. Um, Aaron's sons brought the blood near to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar. The altar had a, four horns, one on each corner. And he poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. And the fat, the kidneys, and the protuberance of the liver from the sin offering, he turned into smoke on the altar, just like the portion of of Vayikra explains that you're supposed to do. We did that as the Eternal had commanded Moses. And the flesh and the skin were consumed in fire outside the camp. So if you were here three weeks ago and we were reading Vayikra, I don't know, maybe Karen, you talked about this stuff again in Tzav. Did you have fun? Yeah. Good, good. Uh, um, 
they're following the instructions that have already been described earlier in the book. Then he slaughtered, verse 12, the ram, the, the burnt offering. Aaron's sons passed the blood to him, uh, and uh, he dashed it against all sides of the altar. And they passed the burnt offering to him in sections, as well as the head, and he turned it into smoke on the altar. He washed the entrails and the legs and turned them into smoke on the altar with the burnt offering. Next, he brought forward the people's offering, and he took the goat for the people's sin offering and slaughtered it and presented it as a purgation offering like the previous one. And he brought forward the burnt offering and sacrificed it according to regulation. And he then brought forward the meal offering and taking a handful of it, he turned it into smoke on the altar in addition to the burnt offering of the morning. And he slaughtered the ox and the ram, the people's sacrifice of well-being, which is Zeba uh, Hashlamim. Um, Aaron's sons passed the blood to him, which he dashed against every side of the altar, and the fat parts of the ox, and the ram, and the broad tail, the covering fat, the kidneys, the protuberance of the livers. They laid these fat parts over the breasts, and Aaron turned the fat parts into smoke on the altar, and elevated the breasts and the right thighs as an elevation offering before the Eternal, as Moses had commanded. Aaron then lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the offering of well-being. All of this in chapters 1 through 8 is the instructions for how to properly do this. And now it's being done. I just realized that. Moses and Aaron then went inside the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people and the presence of the eternal appeared to all the people. Fire came forth from before the eternal and consumed the burnt offering and the fat parts on the altar. And all the people saw and shouted and fell on their faces. So I like that part. It's very cinematic to me. Uh, my friend Malila Helner from Jerusalem was visiting over Pesach, and uh, she's traveled in India. She's a, she's a scholar, a Jew, a scholar of uh, Judaism and Jewish mysticism. She teaches at the Hebrew University, and she's one of my teachers, but we're also very good friends. She's, a, she's fun, because she, for her, she traveled to India with her late husband, like she said, 25 times. They couldn't get enough of it, because in parts of India, the sacrificial culture is still alive. <coughs> Where you go to a temple, and there are priests there, and everybody brings their offerings, and the priest <coughs> takes them, and there's a whole ceremony, and burns them on the altar, and people make stuff and bring their best stuff. She said, it's just like this. It's a living culture in parts of India. I was so interested listening to her talk about it. She said she never understood Leviticus until she went to India. And I actually, when I was in India once, which was in 1991, and I went into a, um, a Kali temple. Kali is the destroyer, female goddess, like, but also gives destroying life again. And, and they were sacrificing a goat there on the altar, and there were flowers, and there were fruits, and there were... I went, oh. So when Ramalila was reminding me of that, has anyone else been to, ever seen a, something like, yeah, where were you? Yeah, and uh, I've seen it in India and Nepal also. They in Nepal, yes. 
Yeah, it's alive and well. So what, wh where do humans get this impulse? It's amazing, isn't it? Um, and maybe over the centuries, this practice um, traveled all the way between the Indian subcontinent and the Middle East. But what does that say about the Aztecs or, or the Incas or... Fascinating. Fascinating, isn't it? Yes. Any connection with the Torah? And what came first, Indian culture or ours? Oh, well, that's an open question. The question is not which came first, but was there discourse between the Fertile Crescent, where, you know, the ancient land of Israel and the Tigris and Euphrates, and the Indian subcontinent, I mean, there was a spice road. It goes back way, way back in, uh, in, in um, uh, the book of Esther. It says that Ahasuerus' kingdom stretched from India to Ethiopia, and there were letters. There, so I don't know which came first, and I don't know if anyone can prove which came first. But the interesting question to me, Bruria, is whether they had influence upon each other, whichever way it was going. However, as I said, how does that explain sacrificial um, religious practices in parts of the New World and in other parts of the world where that might have never had any contact? So for me, it's a fascinating question about the human desire to, to focus in that way uh, and create a priesthood. The whole thing is a fascinating thing about the human makeup to me, which is a mystery. Um, I'm a big fan of, of Jung's thinking, yes. Is there a collective unconscious in which images and impulses arise that are common to all of us that we then manifest through our creative expression? Could be. Could be. Miriam? I still go back to the golden calf. You should. The golden calf is central to all of this. It's, uh, what do you think about it? Well, it's like they were hungry for something, but they are only the example of Egypt. Mm. They didn't have any new material to use. They didn't have a new guide. So for them to be given this, it's like, oh. Then they see the fire and they exclaim and like, fall on their faces. We get it now. <laughs> it's like they, but they had a limited view of the possibilities. Thank and you. Now, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So here's this dramatic scene where all the instructions are being followed by Aaron to the letter. Because you had, you remember that line in verse 16, according to regulation, kamishpat, and elsewhere where it says, uh, as God had commanded Moses and uh, etc., has to be to the letter, and the fire comes down, and they behold the power and presence of yod heh vav -Heh, the, the unseen God that liberated them from Egypt. That's chapter nine. And he actually, and, and so God actually manifested. God's presence, the kavod of Adonai. So the Hebrew word kavod, let's talk about it. Um, what do we know about this word kavod? It usually gets translated as honor or glory. Anyone who knows Yiddish knows the word kovod. Kovod is when you give somebody honor, right? Kaved means heavy, weighty. Um, 
I mentioned also that kavet is the name of the, in Hebrew, for the liver. Maybe because it's the biggest organ, you know, or maybe it's like a, maybe it's some other connection. Um, so, kav, so, baruch kevod Adonai min kamo. Blessed is God's glory, of, you know, leolamvayad, forever and ever. So, I've tried to think of the word maybe as gravitas, um, uh, this weighty presence, this felt presence. That's what kavod seems to mean, and that's how God is experience, God's presence is experienced by the children of Israel. It's called kavod, glory or presence. Uh, okay, so that's what, yeah? Is it the same root as kavana or separate? Separate. Kavod is kaf bet dalid, and kavana is kaf vav nun. What about the fact that it adds up to 32? Well, that's significant. <laughs> Kavod adds up to 32. Ooh, that's beautiful. In Jewish number riffing, 32 is also the number for lev, heart. And it's the number of pathways in the mystical tree of life. Um, and uh, what's interesting to me about also is that when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, sometimes it says, which means strengthened, or which means to tighten a grip around, and sometimes made his heart heavy. But maybe what was happening is maybe Pharaoh's heart was being made into, filled with his own sense of glory or something like that, so that he couldn't possibly imagine that there was anything more wonderful than himself. I never thought of that before. I like that. I'm the most wonderful fella. It's been my fortune to know. Um, yeah, yeah. Bruria? About the blood. Yes, that's another significant thing here. We're not allowed to eat blood. That's right. but not consumed. Right. It's given to God because blood in the Torah is the stuff of life and it's, right. it belongs to God. But yes, it's a bloody mess, isn't it? <laughs> they are, because the blood is the life force and they are invoking the life force. It's the fuel for the fire, really. Also, mm-hmm. Well, actually, the fat of the offering is the big fuel for the fire. The blood gets splattered around and, taught and on the ground and onto the altar as kind of... I can picture it. It's like if blood for them is the, uh, the, the, the force of life that's implanted within every human being and every ant creature, then they're sort of... They're, they're, uh, they're painting it on everywhere. Bathe, mm-hmm. well, it, yeah. uh, the hind part of the beast yes. is fat, a lot of fat. That's why it's not kosher, because the fat contains a lot of blood. Is It's hard to porch that? It's hard to get the blood out of the hind part? The, it's not kosher. It's, um, but Buria, I thought that was because of the Gid Hanasheh. What I was taught is that um, it says when Jacob 
limps away from wrestling with the angel, that he was limping uh, because of his sciatic nerve, and that therefore the children of Israel do not eat the sciatic nerve in creatures. That's what it says in, in, in that Parsha. And what I thought, and I'm not, you, your dad was the Shochet, I don't know, but uh, was that it's very hard to remove the sciatic nerve from the hind parts, and therefore it became customary, not that the hind parts are unkosher, but if you don't remove the sciatic nerve, the hind parts are unkosher, and so it was simpler to sell that to non-Jews and not eat it, because it was, but theoretically there was nothing unkosher about those parts. It wasn't because of the blood, as I understand it. So, there we go. That's the edge of, that's the edge of my expertise about that. And I don't know if this is important or not, but uh, when I read that the blood was spattered on all sides of the altar, yes. I didn't read that afterwards someone was obliged or assigned to clean it up. And I had an image in my head of the altar being dried blood forever. I wonder. Yeah. I wonder if after the show they... Uh, the, the Levites came in and scrubbed everything clean. I bet yeah. they did. Yeah. The next it, it would really pile up. Yeah, I bet they did. Do you know that in the description, this is, a, this is sort of a, a, certainly a digression, but uh, it's a cool one. In the, um, when King Herod, in the first century BCE, expanded massively the temple in Jerusalem, he put in gutters, to carry the blood of the massive number of sacrifices that would take place in the temple area um, because there were so many hundreds of thousands of pilgrims coming for the, for the pilgrimage festival and bringing their animal to be sacrificed in Jerusalem. And they found evidence of the, the incredible aqueduct system that he created to bring water to, because they needed a lot of water, there were a lot, and and the uh, the gutter and uh, the gutter system they created to take the blood away, rivers of blood. It's an amazing description, uh, but that's so. Let's come back here now. Okay, I have one more yes. In India, do they also do the blood? I don't know. That's a good question. That's a really good question. Um, so all of this incredible experience and spectacle has just taken place. Chapter 10. Now, and the altars has been consecrated, and they've witnessed what's possible now that they've followed all the instructions. Now, Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, each took his fire pan, put fire in it, that means coals, laid incense on them, and they offered before the eternal alien fire, Esh Zara, strange, alien, something like that, which had not been commanded them uh, upon. And the fire came forth from the presence of Yodhevave and consumed them. And they died in the presence. It says instance which is, a, okay, but the Hebrew is Vayamutu lifnei Adonai. They died in the presence of yod heh vav 
I'm telling you, that's why I prefaced this all. Uh, I have my own theories, but we'll, we'll see. And then it gets even stranger. Yeah. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what yod he said when, he, when God said, Be krovai ekadesh, v'al pnei chol ha'am ekaved, v'yidom aharon. Through those who come near to me, I show, my, I show myself holy, or I become, I become holy. And, I, and my, I, my glory becomes present before all the people. And Aaron was silent. What, what does that mean? Let's read on a little. This is... Why going? Let's just read on a little, and then we'll talk about all of it. So then Moses called Mishael and El-Safan, uh, sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come forward and carry your kinsmen away from the front of the sanctuary to a place outside the camp. And they came forward and carried them out of the camp by their tunics, as Moses had ordered. Well, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. Their bodies seem to be fully present. What happened? Okay, so I want you to remember that the Torah is a visionary text. It's about how you get near to yod heh vav -Hey. What does that mean? Does that mean you go through the toll booth or you buy your ticket and then you're in and you're near God? So we have to get beyond our literal interpretation of the storytelling and understand that this is some kind of um, uh, uh, telling of a, uh, in mythic language of an, uh, what it means to be close to God. Remember, that's the theme of the book. If we try to figure this out literally, it's, it's riddled with contradictions. I mean, they just died. And they were consumed. And they were consumed. And now they're being... Now their bodies are being taken out of the... So... So it's a story. It's a story about our souls. It has to be. This has to be a story, just like when Moses sees the burning bush. The burning bush is not a species of bush in the Sinai wilderness no matter how many documentaries the Discovery Channel makes. <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. They did find oil. Uh, sorry, that's, finding oil was not what motivated Moses to go back to Pharaoh. <laughs> they didn't know it at that time. That's when I saw the burning bush. To 5,000 years. Santa Catarina. Oh, you, oh, right, right. When did you go to Santa Catarina? In 1975. I was there in 76. Really? Santa Catarina is the 4th century monastery that still that sits at the base of the reputed Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula, where they have the burning bush. The burning bush. They say, this is it. Right? But that's what relics are. Relics are, you know, that's what, relics are human beings saying this object contains this power because we continually want to physicalize our experience so we can hold on to it. That's why God not being physical is part of the paradoxical mystery of the story, that we're not dealing with the physical. We just aren't. We're dealing with the human being's spiritual 
um, whatever that is in us, our soul. This is a soul journey. Am I making sense? Wait, d yes. did that make sense? Did that, did what I say make sense then? Well, it, it's relative to the question I was going to ask. Okay. Because why does it specifically say they came forward and carried them out of the camp by their tunics, as Moses had ordered, and what I saw in my head was empty tunics. That's fascinating. They were, yeah, they were dragging out, there were no bodies left, so. Oh, that's a whole other way of reading it. I never thought of that. But it says they carried them out by their tunics. So how could the tunics be empty? So uh, I go in the other direction with this. And the reason I do is because the most fruitful readings for me are when Abraham's talking to God in the terebinth of Mamre um, and then sees three angels that's a spiritual experience. That's not a literal, physical... He can't... There aren't three guys named Angel, you know, and Jesus, and, you know, it's like... Sorry, that's like... A, I guess that's sort of... going. Never mind. Um, I mean, I know, I know a guy named Angel, right? So, but that's not what he's talking about. And when, and when Abraham... Ha when a darkness comes over Abraham and a fire goes between the parts of the sacrifice that he's made and a deep sleep overcomes him. Come on. These are all descriptions of mystical experiences where how do you see a God who can't be seen? You know, you can only approach these stories with the eye of the paradox of trying to describe experiences that can't be physicalized. And yet, because we're storytellers, we make them into stories. Uh, Esther. I'm trying to visualize this. Here, here's the altar. Here's the fire. Here are the sons. And where are the people? Are the people there? No, because this is inside. Oh, this is inside the sanctuary. Yeah, yeah. But the people witnessed the fire coming down and and exclaimed and fell on their faces. So I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. It's after hours. It's after hours. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, but that's what happened. This is after hours. Um, so again, all of this confusion means we have to approach this as if we were a good psychotherapist and someone's telling us the dream they had. Right? In my dream, they died but their bodies weren't consumed. Now think about the burning bush. It says, and the bush was burning, but was not consumed. Right. They're consumed, but their body... So it's the same, like, what is going on here? This is dreamscape. Yeah. And we have to look at it that way. It's, a, it's, it's telling us something about, about our spirits and um, our, the part of us that is questing for understanding and for connection. That's why the word come close. How do you come close to the infinite, unseen creative force of the universe? How do you approach that? It's a spiritual question, right? It's not a physical journey. Um, so we just have to keep that in mind always, and the Torah becomes less opaque. It doesn't become like crystal clear, but like you can I can start swimming then, or something like that. That's how it feels like to me. What's the teaching in that? 
Well, that's what we'll talk about as we go on. Let's just read a little more up till verse 11, and then we'll, uh, we'll talk about some more. Verse 6, And Moses said to Aaron and to his sons Elazar and Itamar, Do not bare your heads and do not rend your clothes. In other words, don't now um, engage in acts of, traditional acts of mourning, lest you die and anger strike the whole community. Now, I don't claim to understand this. But your kin, all the house of Israel, they can bemoan and bewail the burning that the Eternal has wrought. And so do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die. For the Eternal's anointing oil is upon you. In other words, they are in this um, sacred zone. And they have to remain in it. Which they had just been, right, for seven days just before? Yes. Mm -hmm. What was that? Where they'd been for seven days before, because this is the eighth day. Well, that's another important thing. Okay. This all takes place on the eighth day, which is a very important um, rhythm in in the Torah because the circumcision is on the eighth day uh, after seven days of confinement Miriam can re on the eighth day returns to the people so the eighth day is the time you get up on the eighth day after sitting Shiva it's a time of uh, uh, beginning again or something like that uh, and they did as Moses had bidden and now Yudhei speaks to Aaron saying, drink no wine or other intoxicant, you or your sons, when you enter the tent of meeting, that you may not die. This is a law for all time throughout the ages. For you must distinguish between the sacred and the profane, and between the impure and the pure. And you must teach the Israelites all the laws which the Eternal has imparted to them through Moses. Oh, there's so much going on here. I do want to point out that Sylvie, the bat mitzvah girl, Sylvie uh, Berquist, who's just amazing, this is her portion, and she's going to speak about how she understands the sacred and the profane. Uh, and her, she's such a deep kid. I, I listened to her practice her teaching uh, yesterday. And remember, profane, before it means like profanity, profane literally just means every day. So it's the, op it's the sacred and the profane. And she talks about how the profane isn't bad because without it, you wouldn't have the sacred. Because you can't have something sacred if there's not something that it isn't ordinary, ordinary right? And she has a, she, it's, she's a great kid, um, real thinker. Anyhow, so in other words, same with pure and impure. Impure doesn't mean bad in Torah. Impure means not pure, not part of the sacred precinct. But it's not a value judgment against it. Uh, but the priests, Aaron and his sons, have been assigned to stay in the pure zone. Uh, that's their job, and it's like kind of a restrictive, restricted job. They can't even go out right now. You know, being a priest is not necessarily all it's cracked up to be, even if you get the best cuts of meat. Um, it's a very heavy responsibility. And again, if we think anthropologically about holy men and women in different cultures and the intense restrictions that are placed upon them, uh, the amount of seclusion that they undergo, all those things, this also seems to come up in, in traditional cultures all over the world. Uh, anyhow, 
so God's instructions to Aaron are you cannot be intoxicated when you are performing these rites. Does that mean that Nadav and Avihu were intoxicated? Maybe. Or if we think about, um, you know, when we think about liquor, and we know that one of their words is spirits, because it's a consciousness-altering substance. So maybe this is some instruction about having to be totally conscious when you engage in this consciousness-altering right. I'm not sure, but it's an interesting thing to note. So again, let's look at this on sort of a, first on a, a, a um, um, shot level, on a um, plain meaning level. These two adolescents, Nadav and Avihu, see this great thing going on with their dad, and they, they go, wow, did you see that? Oh, I want to do that again. It's like playing with fireworks after 4th of July, and they, God forbid, they blow their hands off or something like that, right? And so one of the, on a basic level, it's like you don't mess with fire. You, don't, you just don't do it. You don't go in just to have the experience, and then, uh, because that was cool, let's do it again. That's not the purpose. And uh, that, might be its most, that might be its most basic explanation, um, and they're being held up then as an example of what not to do. God forbid your kid, so it's like when some kid dies, as happens so often in a tragic accident, the whole community responds by saying, look, you know, that's what happens if you, so on some level, if you're not prepared and there's a sort of upwelling of awareness around drunk driving or around, you know, so on one level that might be a communal explanation uh, and a suitable one uh, for what's going on. On another level, there's a spiritual, it's a spiritual cautionary tale to me. Because one of the things that happens when people have an intense experience, an intense spiritual experience, whether they came upon them unawares, whether they meditated and fasted so that they could have it, whether they took hallucinogens so it would like open their minds, whether is that it's a mind-blowing experience. And one response to that would be, oh, I want to do that again. And that kind of spiritual materialism, that spiritual consumerism, is dangerous. Because you, start to, you might interpret that what life's all about is having that experience again. Rather than what life's all about is learning from that experience right, and treating it as holy, not as something that you get to try again because it was great, but something that's given to you as a gift that has deep teaching in it and wisdom that you need to then integrate into your not sacred but profane everyday life, right? So if you're, at, if you're going after spiritual experiences because you're an experience junkie, then you are playing with fire in terms of spiritual seeking. 
because you're doing it for your own gratification instead of for the purpose of being a vessel for that light. Yes, Marie? Working with youth with chemical addictions, they never had the experience as the first time. The first time is, and they're always trying to get that. The first time they light up with that incredible high. Uh But they Mm -hmm. never can get it back, but that basically they devote their life to that as opposed to actingly, acting responsibly, being a part of the community and all the things, and knowing, you know, if you don't, then there's other ways of, I mean, there's a book about 100 ways to get a high without getting stoned, Mm -hmm. (laughs) something like that. Ecstasy comes, thank you, comes from the Greek word to be beside yourself, literally, I think that's what it means, Mm -hmm. ecstasis, uh, outside yourself, and Having an ecstatic experience means you get outside of yourself into something bigger. And it's thrilling and illuminating and enlivening. And that's what a spiritual experience is. It's any moment when you get out of your own way and you are communing, experiencing something larger. You don't have to be a mystic to know what I'm talking about. We've all had those experiences and we want more of it. But it's a trap, because our ego wants more. But we have to transcend our ego. We can't have that experience and then say, oh, that was a great experience. My ego loved that experience. Therefore, I want it again. You'll say, that was an amazing experience being outside of myself. I guess there's more to life than I thought there was. What's the, and you're a seeker rather than a consumer. Um, This is really a tricky balance, right? It's the same with infatuation. There are plenty of people who just want that feeling over and over again. Why not? But then, is there, but you're never gonna grow up. You're never gonna have what you really want, which is a stable source of love in your life. So, Uh, That requires taking what you learn in that mind-expanded state and remembering it in the rest of your life. That's why, as I've said many times, the core rhythm of seven in the Torah is the six days of profane time and the seventh day to reconnect so that you take it back. Um, This is a lot of what I think about what happened to Nadav and Avihu in that case. Yes, Berea. Experience and the seeking of meditation and uh, prayer with devotion, which is kind of physical and maybe minded, but maybe minded, mindful meditation. Uh, all the Muslim prayers. Everybody, Muslim prayer is a so, universal yeah. activity. So how? I don't see any difference between. Um, like, uh, between smoking a joint. And uh, meditating, if it gives you the same results. Right, the question is, once you have those results, and prayer is one, and meditation are one of the means to gain those results, to get enough, like, perspective, who knows how to, there's so many ways to say it. Once you get those results, what do you do with them? That's the question. Do you then say, wow, I like this feeling, I want to have this feeling all the time, I'm going to smoke another, or I'm going to, Or do you say, 
wow, that experience reminds me that I am a conduit for God's love in the world, and I'm going to use that experience and the memory of that experience to inform all of my daily actions. So what happens to spiritual narcissists is that they just want that experience. But all spiritual traditions that I'm aware of, in Judaism, Moses is out in the wilderness. He's got a great life. He's a shepherd. He's out they see in burning bushes. And he doesn't want to go back to Egypt. Who would want to go back? But the command is to go back. In the Buddhist tradition, it says that the enlightened one has to then leave nirvana, the, the consciousness, the state of conscious the state of uh, universal consciousness and be a bodhisattva, which means to come back and perform continual acts of loving kindness here in the world. That's what we call a tzaddik. So if you're a spiritual narcissist, all you want is to be with God and dwell in that experience. And you think you've made it. But that's not what Judaism or other religious traditions want us to do. They want us to take that experience, integrate it, and bring it back to the world. Um, so it depends on what you want to do with the experience. The so that's why, as a cautionary tale, I see Nadav and Avihu as not being prepared for, the, for what they are encountering, because they think it's an experience to have rather than an encounter with uh, the, the power of creation. Um, I don't know if I said that clearly. Uh, anybody want to say something? Yes. Right, right. They're never able to reintegrate. Right, yeah. right. We've talked talked about this a lot. My fr my one of my oldest friends was a graduate student in Columbia in nineteen seventy one. Was that when? Mm -hmm. uh, when the whole campus just yeah. went yeah. berserk, mm -hmm. and it took him twenty years to land again. It's like it's almost like the experience was such an incredibly powerful experience, but he lost his bearings. And uh, um, we talked about it a lot. It, that's what it reminded me of. Yeah. He kept seeking it again. I got to get back to it's like Woodstock, you know, got to get back to the garden. And yes, we got to get back to the garden. But if that become if that overwhelms us as a goal, I want that experience again then we lose sight of the world around us, which needs our love. And so we're not doing our job. That's how I see it. Uh, it just seems that Moses sees what happens to uh, what happens, and he immediately just says, take them away, take them out of here, get them out of camp. It, you know, not even like, what happened, you know, like, Right. This is terrible. And he even says, don't make a shiver over them. Right. You know, they did something wrong. Um, it's not like, that he doesn't say they did something no, he wrong. he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, he just tells them what to do. And you can right. say, he didn't show much sorrow over this. You know, no, he didn't. He didn't show anything. Well, you don't know. Which is a very a, one of the curiosities of this passage. Says, okay, take him out of here. And then it goes right on like this never happened. Go on talking about don't drink in the. You know, well, it's so that it like, won't happen again. It's like right. It's like. It's, you know, this is 
This is what happens if you don't follow the way, you know, mm -hmm. you, you leave bodies, you know, this is outside of that's right. What we, what we do. It's real That's right. That's right. It seems as Moses. Oh. Are there lots of new questions? Oh, there's so much question about this. What about what's going on? So um, we're not going to satisfy ourselves completely because I think partly there are con there's a context here that we don't fully understand, which is what it meant to be part of the holy precinct. The that what the priest's job was. The amount of, and so it's not a moral category that they can't mourn. They have to stay, so it's, some, it's hard for us to, to wrap our minds around this, and I don't fully get it either. But, um, uh, Esther, you want to speak to that? Well, it's very confusing. First, he says, take them away from the front of the sanctuary. And then he says, do not go outside the entrance of the tent of the meeting. Oh, uh, right. For the eternal oil, anointing oil is upon you. So. Um, I think they took the body out of the camp and then came back, but it's not clear. No, it's not clear. Right, right. That's why I have to approach this not as, I have to approach this in a very uh, dreamy mm -hmm. kind of way. I, I don't know how else to do it, or else just reject it out of hand, you know, which I'm not interested in doing because that's not the way we, to study Torah. Um, yes, Ruth? That beautiful little piece, I can never remember where it is, where Aaron and I think Moshe and a few of the elders sit at the foot of God. Ah, okay. Uh, um, some of us will remember that in Parshat Mishpatim, in Exodus chapter 24, um, they have received the commandments, it's before Moses has gone up for 40 days and 40 nights. And Moses, Aaron, 70 elders, 70. and Nadav and Avihu mm -hmm. go up to, and they behold God. And they ate and drank. You want to look at that passage? Because it's part of the mystery of Nadav and Avihu that these pishers somehow got to be part of that experience. Um, and... It leads to very interesting storytelling. Uh, you would find it on um, Thank you. Five twenty three. Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Eternal with Aaron, Nadav and Avihu, and 70 elders of Israel, and bow low from afar. Moses alone shall come near the Eternal, but the others shall not come near. Near, near, near. Mm -hmm. Nor shall the people come up with him. Moses went and repeated to the people all the commands of the Eternal and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice, saying, All the things the Eternal has commanded we will do. And Moses then wrote down all the commands of the Eternal. Let's skip the next paragraph just to get in the interest of time. Number nine, verse nine on the next page. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadav and Avihu, and 70 elders of Israel ascended. Alu, Vaya'al. And they beheld the God of Israel. 
under whose feet was the likeness of a pavement of sapphire, like the very sky for purity. And yet, God did not raise a hand against the leaders of the Israelites. They beheld God, Yechezu, they, uh, a chazon is a vision, uh, and they ate and drank. Well, the next time we hear about Nadav and Abihu is this passage uh, in our, our portion this week. Karen? So, I have trouble imagining them as adolescents, actually, um, because... Yeah, you're right. Moses is already 80 at this point. Aaron's a little older than that. So I imagine them maybe, I don't know, 61, 62 years old. Okay, they're not kids. They're not kids. So I look at it kind of a little like the Korach story. That here are these um, older men, you know, not as the elders, but they're... So the, 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 the key words here have to do with um, the commanded, that this was not commanded, Siva. Not commanded of them, mm-hmm. And so there's an ego issue here, perhaps, that they're taking the, they are making a decision to do something that is not commanded. And that's the lesson. Um, you know, that they're, it's their decision to do this. This is uncommanded, unauthorized, and we need to stay on the program. Yes. The plain meaning of the text is they're a, they're a um, cautionary tale. Right? Um, Don't take too much in your own hands. Right, right. And do follow the instructions. (laughs) Um, So, yes, I would say that's the plain meaning of the text. So we were talking about plain meaning. That's right, that's right. Don't play with matches. Until you until you're a fire ex, expert. No, that's not so. playing with matches. That this is not. I don't. I'm saying this is not playing with matches. Oh, you mean in the Exodus section or? In, no, no, no. In the, oh. In Shemini, they're not playing with matches. They no. are deciding we're going to do this. It's not a play. This oh, is I didn't a, mean it that way. Um, yeah. They the, are having the ritual. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the ritual was not commanded. Right. It seems to me that uh, it's a enforcement that there are boundaries and there's authority. And this is now a lesson in authority. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All true. All true. And then why? All of that I see. And then why, for example, on page 709, does Moses say to Aaron in verse 3, this is what the Eternal meant by saying, through those near to me I show myself holy and gain glory before all the people. Because the nearness, they were not near. Yes, they weren't following the program. The carbon has to do with the siva, it had to do with the commandment. Mm-hmm. So by doing the ritual outside of the commandment, they actually were not near. Ah, thank you. Yes. Good, good. Yes, Miriam? But reflecting back, that they were part of the group that... They were part of the group that beheld, beheld God. God on Mount Sinai. So maybe they thought, oh, we were part of that group. We have some We clout. have the authority. We have the authority. Yeah, maybe they, they ascribe to themselves the authority. And the story I like to tell, and this is just my story, is that that experience, they wanted it again. They wanted to have that again. They wanted to behold that presence and eat and drink it up. 
the one in Exodus maybe was the experience that they had where they beheld God and ate and drank. And the debate among the rabbis is, did they eat and drink food or were they eating and drinking the presence of God? That's one of the questions that uh, the, uh, the, the rabbis debate. Uh, Eitan? One interesting thing is the, um, the counter to the eating and drinking is that they go in and they're consumed somehow by fire, but their clothes remain intact enough that they can pull them out by them. Yes. So then it's basically like the opposite happened, right? Like what's left of them is the shell of... Their, their physical being. Yeah, that's all they get, and which is uh, like the counter of they ate and drank. Right, by your flu vishtu. And then they, all that's left is their coat. Last we heard of Nadav and Avihu, they were envisioned, they were beholding God's presence and eating and drinking. And here in this portion it says, Vatochal, and for the fire came forth from, from God's presence and ate them. It's very interesting. But, okay, but so I'm thinking about Abraham, and I'm thinking about God wanting him to go and sacrifice Isaac on the. Uh, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And. Um, and Abraham follows to the letter. And who can understand that? Who could understand God pushing Abraham in that direction? And then here, well, maybe it has to do with, you can never know me. I am inscrutable. I am the Lord thy God. Don't get, to, get near, but don't get too near. Don't, mm. get, don't take advantage of you thinking you know me. Because he's unpredictable. Because he's unpredictable. Because he's unknowable. Well, that's Esther's. That doesn't cut it for you? Okay. We have a holy disagreement here. It doesn't feel right to me. It really Okay, I'm with you. But whatever. Yeah, okay. That's, that's, that's what makes for horse races. Um, that's why we're here. Steve and then Helen. I, I was just going to point out, that going back to the plain meaning of the text, and Aaron, that the, the text makes a point of saying, and Aaron was silent. Yes. And no words are wasted in Torah. So what, what do you, what yeah, do you think that he's just lost his sons? Moses, you know, so I'm, so I'm kind of dressing down here, sort of, about, you know, you should understand it this way, and he is silent, says nothing. It may not be addressing down. It may be Moses just saying. Yeah, and he says nothing. Yeah. And Mo and Aaron is silent. This is a big question too. Aaron is silent. Hmm? He's always the one talking, and now he's. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? So let's address that in a minute, Helen. Could it be that they thought they were going to draw down God again, do it again, yeah, make it happen again by what they were doing? It appears that way. But what happened? I I didn't get that before. But when you went back to the where they once were able yeah. to see God, maybe they thought they're going to see God again if they do this. That's my story. <laughs> because just connecting dots between those two very significant named appearances of Nadav and Avihu, uh, that really captures my attention. They weren't just doing a ritual. They're really trying to get God to come back they want that. They want that experience again. Yeah, it's an incredible experience. Uh, wait, Nancy, you had your hand up. I was just thinking that um, when Aaron 
Aaron was silent. It's like he just lost his sons. There's nothing to say. When somebody That's dies, another thing that gets talked it, about. It. What's there to say? There's nothing to say when that happens. Uh, yes, that's another clear way of taking that. Bob? I just wondered whether it's also a... Uh, uh, whether it's also been read as a uh, part of our culture that you can't uh, pass down to the sons what's earned by the fathers. That, um, I'm not saying this right. But uh, no, I totally understand what you're saying. In the case of the priesthood, yeah. which is hereditary, yes. that doesn't appear to be the case. Right. But in order to merit, you're right, that you have to follow the rules. You, you have, have to, to learn the job. Yes. It isn't just that you get the job, but you have to learn it. Is that oh, that would be a good teaching, too. Yeah, thank you. I had never thought of that. I want to throw out another possibility, which gets treated by many Jewish mystical interpreters, which is, and, which is, and also in the Midrash, it's not just from, from rabbinic and on, which is that their death is not a punishment. What if in spiritual, in a spiritual uh, frame, we all will return to God one day? What if this is a consequence of them getting close to God and they're being out of their deep, deep yearning to want to be with God, they, they are. They go. They go. And they don't come back. This is the eighth day? On the eighth day. They go and they don't come back. Now, the only way to approach this level is to assume that um, there is a spiritual realm, that when we die, we return to God. We really do. We can't prove this or disprove it. But if you're a skeptic, you're wrong. Because you don't know. No, you don't. Your skepticism will just make you wrong. It'll just, it'll just, it'll just like, that's it. That couldn't be that. So, what if, because in cultures all around the world, um, comes up this understanding that you can be a someone who transcends physical boundaries, who's a soul traveler, who's an astral traveler, who experiences the divine light, who brings teachings back, who's an oracle, who's a shaman, who's a boundary crosser. There's plenty of evidence that this is part of human experience, whatever the so-called objective, which we'll never know, reality is, uh, that this is a story about two spiritual seekers who seek too far. They're not punished. This is, they just, they're lost to us. Well, they succeed on one level, but for Judaism, certainly, life is with people, right? It's with, it's here. So, uh, so one other interpretation is when God says, through those near to me, I show myself holy and gain glory before the people, Nadav and Avihu are the example of what happens when you go to get too close? But you're not crashing. No. You're being absorbed yeah. into the light. 
Right? This isn't a tr- what happens to them from this perspective, the spiritual perspective, is this is not tragic. But it is an example. It does show you that there ain't no coming back if you decide, if you make this choice. And that's a whole other level of interpretation. And then Aaron's silence can be interpreted differently yeah. as someone who lives in this, his job yeah. is to live in the crack between the worlds, right? His job is to mediate. He, his job, it'll say in numbers, is to take God's blessing and through him bestow it on the people. So maybe Aaron understands what's going on. Yeah. That's a whole other way of approaching it, which we will not be able to apprehend if we don't at least put on temporarily, even if it's not our, our regular clothes, the idea that there's a spiritual reality. Right? And that is a whole mystical. Now there's the pshat, now the, the plain meaning, and then there's this whole mystical level of interpreting Torah. They do not contradict each other. They coexist. Right. How, about, how about that Aaron lost his uh, sons to, to suicide? Uh, well, that would be a whole other story for us to tell, which, um, because, uh, yeah, that's a whole other, that's a whole other level. Uh, Gail? Well, I, I was just going to ask about, like, the idea that, that, that um, entering that realm is connected to death. Like, we don't see that anywhere before that here. I mean, like, you know, the spirituality and entering the spiritual realm, like, is this the first time we're seeing that there's a connection between death and going there? You know, is there any... I don't know, but I'm thinking about God's fire that animates the burning bush. It doesn't kill the burning bush. That's the same fire. This is God's fire. This is not regular fire because their bodies aren't consumed. So what's going on? I think the Torah is giving us clues that God's fire is a metaphor and not physical fire, but a different metaphor of what fire, of what fire burns in every atom in creation. You know, that if we have the eyes to see it, we see the whole world bursting with this creative energy. Uh, and so they, so, the, what, so something about them was consumed, but it wasn't their physical bodies. That's why I don't think it's too much of a stretch to try to interpret the story also on this level. You, I think you follow what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, we're almost out of time, yeah. You spent the previous seven days in purification, right? Right, Aaron has spent the previous seven days in intense purification. Yeah. So Preparation. What does purification mean? It means to get the dross out of you so that you are ready without um, blockages to meet this light of God. That requires a lot of prep. Yeah. And, a lot of, and it's, not, it's not a physical preparation, it's an internal preparation. So they go in unprepared. Right? They, they go in unprepared. They don't understand what they're dealing with. And again, on the spiritual level, you'll forgive me for, for saying this you know, over and over over the years, but somebody who dropped acid for the first time and had the doors of perception opened through LSD and were not prepared for it, oh my God. 
they could lo- they, they could lose their bearings, right? That's the analogy that's most pertinent for my generation. Um, so let me read you something before we conclude. Can I ask oh yes, Mary. Older than Joshua and the, the two. We don't know. Okay. We don't know how old they are. It's total hope that doesn't say. They're Aaron's sons. That's all we know. So, Isaac of Akko in the 13th century. Where's Akko? It's on the coast of Israel. It's an ancient port city next to Haifa. And uh, um, uh, wrote in his book called Otsar Chaim, which means the treasury of life. Otsar is like a storehouse. Um, this is from Daniel Matt in his collection about, of uh, Kabbalistic uh, writings. When our master Moses, peace be unto him, said to God in Kitisa, in the, uh, after the Golden Calf episode, show me your presence. Isaac of Akko says, Moses was seeking death so that his soul would obliterate the barrier of her palace, the palace of God's presence, which separated her from the wondrous divine light she had aroused herself to see. Oh, he's speaking of Moses and the feminine. I I didn't look up the notes. But since the people of Israel needed Moses, oh, it's God's soul. The soul is feminine. So that's why. So Moses' soul wanted to obliterate the barrier of the palace and just know God. And, uh, uh, but there's a barrier to that palace which separates you from her, the soul from the wondrous divine light. But since the people of Israel needed Moses, God did not want Moses' soul to leave her palace to attain this light of his. Mm-hmm. Now you, my child, says Isaac of speaking to us, strive to see the supernal light, for I have brought you into a vast ocean but be careful. Keep your soul from gazing too much and your mind from conceiving lest you drown in this ocean. Strive to see, yet escape drowning. Your soul will then see the divine light, even cling to it, but still dwelling in her palace, meaning your body. So that was the line. Strive to see, yet escape drowning. That I thought was so great. That seemed to apply to this story. Um, Because we weren't put in the world in order to escape it. That's not the Jewish way. Uh, We're put in the world in order to find God here. That's the Jewish way. And uh, uh, so our task then, as opposed to some spiritual traditions, which are truly about transcending our physical realm. Ours is not about transcending the physical realm, nor are many spiritual traditions. It's about, it's about uh, learning to swim, but not drown in that spiritual realm, so that you're here in your body to do the work that we're here to do in the world. Uh, and that's my current, like, where my mind goes with an Adav and Avihu. Yeah. So their soul left, but that's why their body was mm-hmm. just wrap it up and take it away. Mm-hmm. No, gone. That's right. They're gone. You merged with the light. They drowned in the oneness of the ocean. And that's not a tragedy 
Right. Uh, but it's also not what, not why we're here. Uh huh. No. What we're here to do is to have our soul taste that light, so that it can then translate it into our actions in the world. That's what being. That's why God put us here, and that's the Jewish understanding. Or else we go straight from birth to right death. <laughs> why were we born? Yeah. You know, to learn how to do it here. Bother with it. Yeah, to learn to gain the level of awareness where we could live meaningful lives here. And then when the time comes, we can get reabsorbed. You don't want to burn up on re-entry. You don't want to burn up on re-entry, you, and you also don't want to burn out. Burn up, burn out, both of those are, you want to burn. Right. You want to learn how to, how to keep the ones. flame burning, but it's a task. But not burn up or to burn out. Not to burn up, not to burn out, not to burn down. Right. right. That's our task, is how do we tend the inner flame? which is our soul. The soul is a candle, says Proverbs. Uh, how do we tend the inner flame? Give it the right... It's a big challenge. You don't want to snuff it out, and you don't want it to consume you. So that's, that's here we are, a mixture of, mixture of spirit and body. Yeah. yeah. That's beautiful. Well, thanks, everybody. Oh, thank you.